and welcome to Capstan Live. We're the podcast that makes sure you pay the real estate taxes you owe and not a dollar more. If you own commercial real estate or advise someone who does, you're in the right place for a real talk about maximizing tax savings. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Capstan Live. I'm Helena Carmel, and today's episode is our second annual year-end top 10 spectacular. We're going to hit all the highs and maybe some of the lows of the last 12 months, so you'll be totally up to date and ready for tax season. But I can't jump into the top 10 without introducing my top three. You know them, you love them, our favorite frequent Capstan Live guests. Please welcome back to the pod, Terry Johnson, Bruce Johnson, and Zeve Carmel. Hey guys! Hey, hey, what's going on? I can't believe you're all in the same room. It doesn't happen too often. It does not. It does not. <laughs> Listeners, these are three of the busiest professionals that I know, and I appreciate them so much making the time to, to gather in one space and give me some of their precious time this December. How's everyone doing today? Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, it's great stuff. Good to be here. Excellent. As Bruce says, living the dream. Uh, living yeah. my dream. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every that is definitely Bruce's catchphrase, <clears throat> and I'm on board. Um, so we let's dive right in, gang. Everybody's busy. No time for fluff this time of year. Mm-mm. So we're going to count down from number 10 to number 1. That was a drum roll. Aaron, our producer, can you put a drum roll in there? gave me a thumbs up okay number 10 Zeev let me let me start by turning to you um 179 expensing hasn't been the most impactful strategy in the past but we're anticipating that we might see more of it moving forward yeah it's interesting Uh, 179 expensing has been around for a very very long time uh although it seems like in the last few years it's really taken a back seat because of the fact that we have 100 percent bonus depreciation uh, that coupled with the fact that not every type of business is eligible to take 179 expensing um, has made it a um, an offering uh, or a, uh, a strategy that is not has that has not been as popular. Uh, and so <clears throat> now with bonus stepping down uh, in the coming years, which we'll talk about later, um, 179 might come back into the forefront for certain for certain taxpayers who who would want to get a full write-off on certain assets. Ah, because if when bonus was 100%, it was essentially equivalent to 179 expensing, so Yeah, to speak. especially on the federal side. Right. Um, not all states accept bonus, but certainly on the federal side, if you, got, if you had a choice of applying 100% bonus uh, to an asset or doing a 179 expense, it's almost easier just to take the bonus, less strings attached. But moving forward, though, we might see some more some more bonus 179 expensing interplay. Correct. And the truth is there are different limitations uh, among states. Um, some people might utilize 179 expensing to a certain point and then capitalize the rest of it and apply bonus. You know, it really depends on the needs of the taxpayer. So we might see more of a combo going on. Okay. You know, Steve, I've seen um, lately a couple of scenarios where... Because the bonus being 100% with qualified improvement property, obviously people are maxing that out. But if you have like an HVAC system and you're a trader business and you have rooftop units, that's not going to be included on your QIP because it's external. So the 179 comes into play there because ah. you can expense those rooftop units. Correct. Correct. So some of the, 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 the more recent changes to 179 uh, under TCJA allowed things like rooftop units, also roofing in some cases, to, uh, to be 179 expense, to, whereas, uh, you know, in the past that would not have been allowed. Uh, and those assets are inherently 39 years, so you can't really apply bonus to them. Ah, wow, good point, Terry. So 179 expensing is a bit of a dark horse, and we might be seeing more of it. Yes. Interesting. Okay, very good. Number nine is an interesting one, um, and I'm going to turn to Bruce for a little, a little guidance on the audit technique guideline. Um, it's been a while, and this year, the IRS released an updated version of their cost segregation audit technique guideline for the first time since 2017. 
Bruce, what's the value of, of this document in the first place? Why is it so helpful? Well, I think number one, it the first issuance of this was 2004. Okay. So essentially what it did was it really validated the usefulness of cost irrigation. Cost irrigation came to be 1997, 1998 through the Healthcare Corporation of America court case. And between that time and the ATG being issued in 04, there really wasn't too much in the way of an understanding of what the IRS would want. So the guideline, which by the way is just a guideline, it's not law, uh, established essentially historically how accelerated depreciation was, how it was done, and then laid out how the IRS would like for it to be done today. And as you pointed out, there's been three instances, I believe, of updates to it. And the most recent one that we're talking about here is, well, I guess I can say not anything truly earth shattering because what it did was it simply validated some of the practices that we already knew. And here at Capstan, we've been practicing. And Zeev and I remember when this came out, we talked a bunch about particularly the electrical compound mm-hmm. aspect of things and how when you're doing a natural cost site study, how do you defensively allocate things to accelerated class life versus it being in real real property categories. So when we look at the ATT in general, to me it was a validation of the fact that yes, this is a defensible practice. And over the years, the IRS has issued updates to this. Uh, probably the most important updates that we've seen, not the most recent, but where they would add, say, a particular property type. So if we look at the ATG, it'll have, I think, like golf courses or convenience stores or examples of they particularly highlighted a property type to say, this is how we would like things to be done. But again, your question regarding this most recent, it wasn't anything that was earth shattering to us. It was simply validation, maybe a little bit more detail on some practices that most people in the cost seg world have been have been utilizing uh, for years. So right. I'm going to say it's kind of a whole lot of nothing. Z, would you agree? It's not <laughs> a whole it? lot of nothing. It's number nine. Number <laughs> nine, number Bruce. Nine. Okay, right. it is number nine. But right. for listeners, i just like to point out that I think it is a whole lot of something because the ATG really gives you a, an auditor's eye view and lets you know, like, what are they looking for? What what matters to them? So you can be sure that you pick a cost seg provider like Capstan that is all on top of it. Um, and Capstan's all over the new the new topics that were included in this update. Like Bruce said, the electrical distribution systems has a new emphasis. They also talked a lot about identifying land values, and that is stuff that the Capstan team is all over. So I think it has value for, for what it's worth. Um, pivoting to number eight, number eight, I would like to turn to Terry and get her input on the rise of the nonprofit tenant. This is totally her area. And we are seeing nonprofit tenants like popping up all over. Mm-hmm. Why, Terry? Like, why are they everywhere? Well, I think maybe they've always been there, Helena, but because of COVID, we've seen, obviously, office buildings struggling. So they're trying to get, the, the landlords are trying to get new tenants in, so they're maybe more open to having nonprofit tenants mm-hmm. than commercial tenants. You know, you're going to get a, a, a nonprofit tenant come in and probably sign a fairly long lease, so that's attractive. You see the same thing on, on retail shopping centers where you might have some spaces that are dark and you have like a Goodwill or some right. kind of a nonprofit. If you're in in Pennsylvania, for example, you could have a... A wine and spirits. Exactly. So those kind of tenants are great tenants to have, whereas before maybe those buildings were fairly full. Uh-huh. So, and then, and you know, we also see sometimes you'll have a whole building that is special purpose for that nonprofit tenant so that the entire space is for nonprofit where it might be a built to suit i see i see so so they have oh obviously always been around but we're seeing them more prevalently these days we're certainly seeing them you know when we're reviewing a project and we're looking at a rent roll we try to pay attention and look at the rent roll to see if there are any nonprofit tenants and it raises a red flag sure because we don't the big issue helena is that 
there's a whole process you have to go through to determine the lives, but when it's a, a nonprofit or government tenant, you're using the alternative depreciation system, ADS versus makers, and there's no bonus associated with that. Uh. So if we have to make sure, and we can't guarantee it, but at least look at the rent rolls and do we see any nonprofit tenants? And when we're putting an, even an estimate of benefit together, we want to reflect that. So we're not expecting to get bonus, uh-huh. and then you don't get bonus. That Yes, that makes sense. Um, and I know this is like a nuanced topic, Terry, and pretty detailed. Is there any kind of capstan tool that might lay a lot of this out for our listeners? Yes, we put together, of course, we put together a flowchart. Uh, the ADS. <laughs> we're all about the flowchart. Yeah. All about <laughs> the it, The ADS flowchart for tax-exempt property, and it has two sides. One is for the building itself. And then the other side is for the personal property and land improvements, which, by the way, it's a different calculation, and it's very nuanced, and you kind of have to run through all the fact pattern to get to what the life would be. And, and our engineers deal with this as well. So once they're into a project and they have to come up in the report with the ADS life, they have to go back and, and refresh that calcula- calculation, make sure it's correct. So I've seen our engineers use this as well as our clients. Wow. Um, so I think it's a good tool. It's a little bit sleepy if you... Uh, <laughs> it's about as good as melatonin, I'm just saying. Um, well, with that um, accolade for it, listeners, it is useful. Okay, it might not set your world on fire, but it's quite useful. And if you um, were brought to this podcast through our newsletter, it is the tool of the month that's going to be attached in the December newsletter. Um, if not, and you'd like a copy, just let us know. We'd be happy to get one over to you. Next up, lucky number seven. Lucky number seven for 754 step ups. I want to talk to Bruce about the 754 step up because it is also notoriously complicated. But it's really easy to overlook the inherent cost seg potential you, you, you can find in a step up. Bruce, why is a 754 step up such a great opportunity? Well, it, it essentially is a new basis that you can utilize a strategy like cost irrigation over and over again. So when we look at property ownership, and particularly I would say maybe about a decade ago, Terry, we started to see these pop up more and more because we're seeing generational changes uh-huh. in, in property ownership, particularly family-owned properties. So 754 prior to the TCJA was fairly straightforward. It was an acquisition. And as we know, prior to the TCJA, there was no bonus application. So essentially, you're looking at almost like a new purchase mm-hmm. with the, with a new calculated basis, that step up that you would focus the study of, a study on. Now, the TCJA comes into play, and then obviously one of the big changes was now the application of bonus on acquired assets. So now 754 had a whole new... angle to it and that basically comes down to how is not just the fact that a 754 occurred but how is it being filed Mm. and is it being filed as a 743 or a 734 and essentially those two forms how it's filed and by the way this is just yet yet another illustration of us in the plain dry world of cost irrigation being drawn deeper into the tax code. These are things that we never had to think about mm-hmm. or be aware of because the implications really come down to in instances where <clears throat> one type of transaction occurs, it, it if there's internal basis transfer, there's no external money coming in, more likely than not, that will not be, that certainly you can use cost irrigation on that but it may not be eligible for bonus application. Uh So with the inverse being that you've got external money coming in, more likely than not, that will be bonus eligible. So number one, we look at 754s. They've been occurring for a long time. Uh, Certainly there has been, and maybe still is, a little bit of uh, confusion on whether or not you can use a tool like cost irrigation on it. You can. And now we have the further detail complication, but also the potential implication of significant benefit is bonus eligible. And really, again, it comes down to how, it, not just that the 754 is occurring, but how are you filing that? And where is that additional money coming from? Another nuanced topic. 
And I want to invite our listeners, if you want to learn anything more about 754 Step Ups or any of our top 10 topics, go to the capstantax.com website, click on blogs, and there's a blog accompanying this podcast. The blog breaks down all 10 topics and has links to every single item so you can get more info about 754 Step Ups or anything that you want to catch up on. Um, One more question about 754 Step Ups, Bruce. Is the Step Up election irrevocable? Like if you go for it, you're stuck, right? I believe that's the case. I think that's the case too. That's what holds people back, right? And I think that one of the things that I have always looked to the CPA, I mean, you know, we love working in Uh, conjunction with the CPA. Yes. It's a perfect example of ultimately they're going to be telling us what type of step up it is and if there's if it's eligible for bonus i love our little graphic that we have that you know bruce was saying there's the different yes. types of 754s and that's a really nice little tool as well and often i'll send that out to the cpa and to say hey could you look at this and tell us which one applies and i think too helena even though as we've said that this has been around for a long time there still is some confusion or maybe has been so particularly for the CPA audience that's listening, or maybe some property owners, maybe you've participated in 754, to be looking at a legacy depreciation schedule because there may be instances of a 754 occurring in the past when it the cost segregation hasn't been leveraged. So um. I think that in today, as we're rolling into yet another tax season, this is another great opportunity, if I can use the term mining and depreciation schedule for potential benefit, Ooh. because there may have well been, say, five years ago, and a step up occurred, but there was not maybe the, the desire, the need for deduction benefits. But just like anything else with regard to cost segregation, you can do a look back on these. So I would encourage people, as you're starting to do your research and preparation for tax planning, to be looking for these, particularly maybe, in inher- I like to say, inherited relationships. Mm-hmm. You've got a new client, really look at the depreciation schedule. This might be another instance of opportunity for them to shine. Present, Thank you for pointing bonus. that out. Thank you for pointing that out. And I learned a new, a new term, mining the depreciation schedule. I love that. I kind of picture you guys now like the seven dwarves. Type hoeing down to the depreciation schedule. Take my pickaxe and stuff. Take your pickaxe, exactly, Mm -hmm. and and sing a little Mm -hmm. song. Um, All right, Bruce is making a face. Time to move on to number six. (laughs) Zeev, can I turn it back to you? I want to talk to you more about about, um, PAD elections, partial asset disposition. Um, Obviously, you know, uh, people have been focused on on newer legislation, which we're going to certainly talk about. But the TPRs are still very much in play. And if you're thinking renovations, you got to think TPRs, right? Sure, sure. Uh, just to recap, um, TPRs have been around. Tangible property regulations have been around for uh, since 2014, I think, is when they became permanent. Mm-hmm. And one of the many things that it enabled taxpayers to do was to uh, take an existing property with, that's being renovated and uh, be able to dispose of assets that are being removed that tax year giving them a full write-off. Uh, it was another effort to help clean up the books of, uh, of, of taxpayers, especially those with historic properties. And I think that um, that's gotten lost in the shuffle a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but it's still very relevant and it's still very useful and lucrative. Um, the, the, the thing that a taxpayer has to be aware of is the timing of it. Okay. Because a, a partial asset disposition or a PAD election can only be done in the year in which that asset's removed. So let's say a client owns a building, right? And they want to replace the roof. Now the roof is a 39-year asset. That old roof is sitting on the books as a 39-year asset. If they remove it and replace it with a new roof, it's true that the new roof is a 39-year asset as well, but that old roof has a value. Right. And if we can isolate what that value is, then that value can be a write-off. And that's that's a big deal because... The that's, remaining depreciable basis a, of Absolutely. That's okay. a long-life asset straight line. There's no bonus on there anyways. If you can get rid of it and have it be a write-off, that's that's like getting 100% bonus depreciation for an asset. It's the equivalent if you think oh, about it. In a, in a sense, yeah. <clears throat> but so I want to point out though that, so like you just said, that has to be done in the year the asset was taken out of service. Correct. This is not a mining situation. You can't Correct. go back in time. And here. you need a means by which you can identify what the value of that asset is. Oh, would and that cert- means be a 
So a cross-seg could certainly help in that regard. We can we can isolate those assets and give the taxpayer a very defensible write-off. Ah, interesting. And there's another another means as well, right? Yeah, we would be able to use uh, the other procedure laid out in the uh, tangible property regulations is the producer price index calculation. Oh, that's true also, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's self-serving that cost segregation is number one. It because is. Because if you think of the granular nature that a, a cost seg study, especially Ziva and his team, how they break it down, it's it's a great tool to be able to get to that detail that Ziva was talking about. But in the absence of a cost seg study, you can cert- the, the CPA or the taxpayer even could be doing a uh, the prescribed PPA calculation that's outlined in the TPRs. Yes. Mm-hmm. We love the TPRs. And I just want to stress... TPR strategies can be used in combination with so many other strategies, That's correct. right? That's correct. Not, not mutually exclusive at all. Yeah, they're just part of a comprehensive mm-hmm. tax strategy. I love them. Hey, Zeb, can I ask you a quick question? Are you seeing, like when you review depreciation schedules and you know that somebody's done a cost seg, do you find that sometimes folks have kind of forgotten about the TPRs or they don't maybe take advantage of it, or are you seeing... Yeah, I mean, we've certainly seen cases where uh, we look at older depreciation schedules, properties that have been owned for a long time, and we can see over the years, even over the last 10 years during the TPR window, um, where various improvements have been made, and the, the, the ability for a pad was not taken advantage of. It's a right? shame. The opportunity wasn't taken advantage of. Um, and it's it's too late at that point. Yeah. Oh yeah, unfortunately, it it. there's exactly. no going back. So uh, so like that's why I say timing is really the is the most essential part of this. So okay, so listeners, if you are considering a renovation, you got to think TPRs because the clock is ticking. That that's a really good take home message there. Yeah, and I think too that as we've found, particularly now that we're however many years since the TCJ was passed into law, and all of the opportunities that were presented, but the level of complexity, particularly as he was talking about, when you institute a pad election, think of what what think of all the details behind that that need to be in place before you make that decision. So what I'm driving at is you need to be able to give yourself time to mm-hmm. prepare and then calculate and then file it. So this isn't something you do at the eleventh hour, at least that's been our experience. You really want to make sure <clears throat> that you're giving yourself the amount of time and effort required to plan for it. It's all about planning ahead. Thank you for stressing that because the truth is that should always be number one. Probably every year, number one take home should be just plan ahead. I mean, you can't go wrong. If my daughter was here, I would be telling her the five Ps. Oh, the five Ps. Bruce, tell us the five Ps. Everyone loves them. Prior planning prevents poor performance. It's true. I've heard it since high school and I didn't like it when I heard it then, but I, I... I get it now. We've, my grown, apologies, we've grown to appreciate My apologies, it Mr. Lance, if you're listening. Mr. Lance of in like AP Calculus. Mold, right? Terry, close on you like a mole. Yeah, I get it. I know. <laughs> oh, this is the kind of fun we have at Camp Stan. <laughs> um, so now we're going to take a pivot. For number five and number four, we're actually going to talk to Jacob Wood. He's one of our regional directors in the Capstan R&D division, and he's going to walk us through some of the latest happenings in the world of R&D. Jacob, thank you so much for coming on to the pod. Thanks for having me. We appreciate it. This is our big year-end special, and we're going through the top 10 events, happenings, highlights, strategies, Whatever you want to look at it, um, our top 10 big stories of the past year that people need to know about for um, tax season. We've rolled through a bunch, and we appreciate you coming in to talk about your area of expertise. We need to talk R&D, because number five on our year-end top 10 is the simple fact that the R&D tax credit remains like grievously underclaimed. Why are people not claiming this incredibly lucrative credit, Jacob? Sure. I think part of it just comes down to people not knowing about it. Um, And if they do know about it, it's called the R&D credit, but really it's more of an applied R&D credit. Mm -hmm. So taking technical concepts and putting those into the marketplace. So really it should be called the business R&D credit or the applied R&D credit. Uh, But we're stuck with the R&D credit because that's, I think, maybe the most simple name. And so... You know, that's what companies like us do is we talk to people about how we can, um, how they can actually claim this. Right. 
Right. Okay. And I read somewhere that only 20% of eligible businesses are claiming the credit. Yeah. And that's an estimate because a lot of companies, again, don't know that they can claim this and the technology is always changing and companies are always forming and, and closing down. And so, um, that's the best estimate out of about $30 billion that was claimed this past year. The majority went to large companies, even though the majority of companies in the U.S. are small to mid-sized businesses. Oh, so these small to mid-sized mid-size businesses, excuse me, they're missing out. They're missing out. Yeah, they out. absolutely are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sometimes, sometimes they think they're just not a scientific company. Ah. Uh, but again, think about that applied R&D. So you might not be a scientific company in your mind, but- are you using engineering, software development, agronomy, uh, design, any of those sorts of things in order to solve problems? Then you probably have some level of R&D claim. Oh, well, and I imagine that that is a thing that people self-select. They're like, oh, well, we don't have white coats and we don't work in a lab, so this can't apply to us. But clearly that's not not the case. Can we just run through a few other deal breakers? Because I want to highlight a few things. Um, some people are like, well, we didn't invent anything new. So therefore, it can't be for me, but that's not right. Right, Jacob? Yeah. So the standard is that you have to create something that is new or improved. The definition of what that thing is, it could be a product, it could be a process. As long as it's technological, it could be anything in your business, even if it's not your main business. It could just be a tool you use Ah. in your business. And it has to be new or improved as to performance, functionality, reliability, or quality. So if any of those things is improved in something you're using in your business or selling to your customers, then potentially you could qualify. So it doesn't need to be brand new. You don't have to have invented the wheel. You know, you could just have invented a thing that smooths your wheel better. That's a terrible yeah. example. Or makes the wheel but, spin faster. Yeah, I know okay. I did your metaphor. You don't dig, worry. okay. I'm there with you. Oh, phew, okay. And here's another thing I want to point out is it doesn't matter if your research ultimately was successful or not, right? Like even if you wanted to like make a great thing to make the wheel spin faster, but it failed, that could still qualify, right? And that's because the credit is based on your activities, not based on your results. Uh, So as long as you're aiming to solve some kind of a problem, then you could potentially claim this credit, even if you're not successful. Activities-based, not outcome-based. Okay, that totally mm-hmm. makes sense. Totally makes sense. And what about the people who just who are like, oh, it's too late. I already filed. I missed it. Well, the best time to claim is the current. You And you can also go back. So you can go back a couple of years. You might be able to go back as many as 20 years. 20 years? But there are a lot of things that you can only claim on an original return. Okay. And so you want to make sure you explore it now but with the idea that you can go back and recoup some of those dollars even now. Wow. So, okay, I want to reiterate, listeners, all these things that you might have thought were deal breakers, they are not. And if you think that you might be engaging in activity that might be eligible, I want you to call Mr. Jacob Wood immediately. Immediately. He's getting everything, all of his ducks in a row for TY 2022, and he wants to help you get your ducks in a row. What's the best way for them to reach out to you, Jacob? Should it be via your email? Yeah, it could be email or LinkedIn, and we'll put that information um, in the podcast. And I would also just say, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of time or effort. It's a free review on our end. Um, We do it to make sure people can plan better. Part of our mission is education. Ah. And so if we can educate you, even if you don't qualify now, we can tell you what those rules are and then you can plan for potentially using this credit in the future. So please reach out. We love spending the time. It's never wasted time. And he really means it, listeners. It's not just because it's the holiday season. He really means it. He's a giver. He's a giver. They all are. Um. Thank you so much for that, Jacob. And I want to just pick your brain a drop more because number four on our year-end top 10 is also an R&D-related um, issue. And this is like so new. Uh, listeners, this is this is this information is up to date as of today when we're recording. Um November 21st. So by the time this comes out. Um, if anything has changed, we'll for sure make it known. But as of November 21st, this is where we're holding. Um, so Jacob, in the past, you could very happily get your R&D tax credit and deduct it like right away. And everybody was happy. But 
if I understand correctly, there was a provision in the TCJA that is just now going to take effect. And that's going to kind of change things moving forward. Can you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, so the, the thing to remember is that the R&D credit is Section 41 of the tax code. That actually is based on 174. So Section 174 is the research and experimentation deduction. Now, that gives companies a deduction for things like wages, paid for research and experimentation. A lot of those wages, it's not a 100% overlap, but a lot of those wages can actually be used for the R&D credit as well. So there's a significant overlap. What the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act did is that it put kind of a ticking time bomb in for those expenses under Section 174. And basically what it said is that you could not deduct those expenses all in the first year. You can only deduct 80% of them or 20% of them, sorry, and then do that over five years. So you're amortizing the cost of the R&D over five years. Um, That's a downer, is it not? It is because if you had a million dollars in qualifying expenses under section 174 and you use those wages for the R&D credit as well, um, then you could potentially have $800,000 of gain instead of being able to deduct the full amount of that 1 million in wages. Mm. So in the short term, taxpayers are going to see their bills go up. Um, Now, over the five years that it would take to amortize, if you continue to have those expenses, eventually you'd get to a point where you actually don't pay any more tax and you recoup all of the extra tax that you paid. It's a short-term cash grab for the federal government. Uh, They really just put it in the bill when they passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act so it could look like it cost less because they swore bills. I know, it sounds silly. It was a little bit clever. Political gamesmanship because they score bills over a 10-year time frame. And so for the first five years, everything was as normal. The back five years of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they phased out a bunch of things. They also did this for bonus depreciation. Yes, those stinkers. Child child tax credits. Yes. um, The uh, standard deduction and a few other areas where they kind of put these ticking time bombs in. Now, the thing is that nobody thinks that these incentives are going away because they're things that existed before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and they will exist after it's just a matter of when they change that so the only really tough situation people would get into is if they start filing tax returns in the 2023 cycle and have to recognize extra income Um, although even in that case people think that there's going to be a retroactive fix to this so you know we're just kind of on pins and needles here it's been about five years that we've known this is coming and uh, now congress has a few weeks to make changes which perhaps after the midterms they will but at this point we're just kind of waiting and seeing and, uh, you know, going from there. And that's why I was stressing that we're recording today, November 21st, because as of now, no news from the Hill. But we are waiting and seeing and and hoping that we might hear, hear some encouraging news. Um, absolutely. We're absolutely. all hoping for a Christmas gift at the end of the year. Aren't we, though? Aren't we, though? And actually, um, Jacob brought up something that really leads us into our number three topic. Thanks, Jacob. Okay, now that we've talked R&D, let's get back to some of the biggest news of the past year. Zeev, talk to me about a very sad goodbye that we're anticipating. Yes, parting is such sweet sorrow, it isn't it? It is. I got used to this. It is. I got used to it. Listen, Everybody 100% bonus depreciation has been everyone's friend since 2017, uh, or at least or late, 2007, late 2017. 2017. But, you know, it's time to say goodbye. All good things come to an end, and uh, 100% bonus is no exception right now. Per the TCJA, uh, bonus has been at 100% through the end of 2022, Starting in 2023, it will step down to 80%. In 2024, it'll go down to 60. And every year, it will go down uh, by 20% more until 2026, at which time it will be gone. No. Yeah, well, yes. Unfortunately, that's the way the law is currently written. Now, things could change. You never know. But this is how it's kind of set up right now. And so <clears throat> it's interesting that we're seeing a whole flurry of activity going on, people trying to acquire properties or get properties in service by the end of the year in order to take advantage of that 100%. Uh-huh. Now, don't get me wrong, 80% is not bad, but 100% is better. And, um, you know, we want to be able to, you know, understandably, people want to be able to take advantage of that as long as possible. But cost tag will still bring benefit no matter what. Of course it right? will. Absolutely. I mean, 80% 
sixty percent, a hundred percent, you're still getting that that bonus depreciation. And look, even before the TCJA, when acquired properties were not subject to bonus, people still, still wanted cost egg studies. Right. Uh, cost egg is a value producer on its own. Right. Uh, okay. Bonus just sweetens the deal. It's like dessert. It's like frosting. Mm. Gotta love. Well, I like frosting. You don't. He doesn't, listeners. He doesn't. Um, so, how can people be mindful of the calendar moving forward? Like, how? How? Okay. So, obviously, bonus is great at any. Or, Cossack is great at any bonus rate. But how can you maximize your bonus rate? How can you kind of push things forward to try to get in before year end? Well, look. Clearly, this this is something which is service date driven. So. If, if taxpayers are, are in a position where they're looking to close on a property, doing it before the end of the year will put you in that, in that 100% uh, zone. Uh, f- furthermore, if, if, if let's say people are constructing uh, a new property or, or doing ten- tenant improvements and you're doing new construction, if it's possible to get a, a CO or, or, or have a space ready for use by the end of the year even a temporary right season, then right? that 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 already kind of gives you some 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 you know uh, ground to stand on in terms of uh, justifying the 100 percent um it's really all about having assets in service at the right time and there is still a possibility that we might have a last minute save right as of this well, recording december 6th we're still waiting on a year-end tax extenders package. So who knows Look, what could happen? Congress does tinker with this. Who knows? Um, we've seen stranger things. We've seen bonus expire and then retroactively reinstated over the years. I mean, you, I, you I never would, know, but, you know. I would say it's highly unlikely given the inflation that we are that could very well right be. now. And I think if you've seen in the past, they've used this as a lever to, to stimulate the economy. So it could be, let's say, when it hits 20% and the, the, and the economy is struggling, they'll pull that lever uh, and bring it back. Why would they do that, though, if while the economy is still fairly robust? I see. Yeah. I, I'm not expecting that. To All be right. Don't hold your breath, listeners. Terry has spoken. I think, though, what's interesting, <clears throat> though, is it's... Look, we're only talking a 20% difference. Right. But we are talking about the difference between a 2022 tax filing versus a 2023, which certainly is a valid concern. But remember, all is not lost. If you happen to have, don't have, as Eve laid out, a CO or TCO or any other justification for placing the service in 2022 and it slips into 23, you need to be thinking about, all right, well, then maybe if you are an LLC type setup, that you start building that benefit into your quarterly tax payment. So you can start getting that benefit as opposed to the concern of having to wait another calendar year before you can get get that in your mm-hmm. 2023 filing. So I think that certainly there we're, we're into the, the final stage of 2022. There's a lot of activity, a lot of people trying to push to get across that, that data service finish line. But if you're unable to, Again, all is not lost. This comes back to why you really need to be talking, uh, particularly taxpayers, with your tax professionals because there are a lot of different ways that you could be benefiting through things like cost irrigation. So, once again, it gets back to those five Ps. Once again, I'm sorry, Mr. Lance. I shouldn't have been mean about them when you told us them in 1996, and I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Number two and number one probably hit some of the biggest news of the year. The IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act that came out this year and really transforms the way that that energy efficient tax incentives will be used moving forward. I want to talk to Terry about her 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 pet project, her favorite. I don't know. You do you just you do love the 45L tax credit, Terry. Yeah, it's been it's been a nice wave to ride for our clients. It has. It has. Um but it's going to be looking really different moving forward, right? Exactly. So, what we saw under the IRA with 45L tax credits and just for folks that maybe aren't familiar with the 45L, it's focused on multifamily, single-family homes, student housing, more residential-type properties where you would get $2,000 per unit tax credit, not a depreciation deduction. And you do all this modeling, you have to certify each unit, and it's and we do that typically at the end of a project utilizing the data that, that's available and the modeling that we do on those projects. So 
it's been fairly straightforward. They either pass or they don't, or mm-hmm. certain units, certain number of units pass. But it's a complicated process, pretty simple to understand. Then you fast forward under the IRA, and as I like to say, you know, when you think of Energy Star, I love when I'm presenting on this. You think of Energy Star, what do you think of? A dishwasher. A dishwasher, you know, going to Lowe's, all the appliances. This Energy Star program for certifying buildings has been around, but there was no really incentive from the government to use this. Right. And there was no payback for going to the expense. So all of a sudden now, we're going to be, you're going to go in, like you have a project on the books, you're going to go in and get an Energy Star certification. So you'll file that application. Again, based on the modeling, you'll have Harris Raiders that will be working on the projects like we've seen in the past, but it's all about Energy Star. Wow. You can get up to $5,000 per unit, but keep in mind, you've got this whole thing about prevailing wage. Uh. So if you don't use prevailing wages, then you're not going to get that high high bar. And and so you've got the Energy Star program, you've got the, the zero... Uh, the zero energy ready home standards that are even that much higher than the energy star program so you can get up to five thousand dollars per unit i will say with the prevailing wage requirements having to get your project certified in the beginning and some of the costs some of the clients i've talked to say you know it's a really great program if i'm using prevailing wage it's a no-brainer but if i'm not using prevailing wage and i'm looking at a much lower tax credit, say $500 per unit, probably not worth ah, the expense. The differences could be as much as tenfold. Right, wow. Right. And it's interesting because we do a lot of work on the low-income housing tax credit mm-hmm. projects. And they now, it doesn't decrease basis for them. And often when they get those tax credits, they're having to use prevailing wages as part of the deal. So, uh, so if they're already using prevailing right, wages, go those, for it. And those projects tend to be very energy efficient. So I think that particular segment is going to do really well with this. Oh, very interesting. Okay, so that 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 is like kind of a plus for the low income housing um, segment. But yeah, so you make a really good point that the 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 prevailing wage and apprenticeship provisions it 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 all comes down to to whether those requirements are met. And last week, actually, the IRS released a notice um, regarding more details about these provisions. They go into timing and they go into the nature of the provisions and how they can be met. We actually have released an industry alert regarding that notice, which you can find on our website under blogs. So you can get more um, info there. But yeah, wow, 45L is is So I like to say it's completely upended. Yes, it is. It's it's very different. And I think those clients that have taken advantage of it are having to scramble a little bit to say, We've got to change our process. We have to get now this Energy Star certification at the beginning of the project. What if I'm 80% done with my project and I'm going to be going in service in 23? It's problematic. That That's it because and everything has... And I haven't has... been using prevailing wage. Uh, right, so... Oh, that's not... Yeah, that's a but, mess. But the prevailing wage that you mentioned, the requirements, they really kick in in 23 for projects to start in 23. So just as a... I Yes, I believe it's January 30th. Um, is, is when um, taxpayers will be subject to meeting those requirements, uh, January 30th, 23. Now, speaking of things that have changed completely, <laughs> honestly, when this came out, I just felt like it was like an Alice in Wonderland world. Like everything is just, just changed up so much. Our number one year end top 10 is to talk about how the IRA has transformed EPACT 179D. And for that, I got to go to Capstan's energy expert. Bruce is like looking around, who's that? It's you, Bruce. It's you. Bruce, talk to us about about all of these changes. I feel like 179D is like almost unrecognizable in its new form. Well, actually, I would say that, you know, you heard Terry talk about 45L. I think 45L has more of a sea change in how it's okay. it's going to be administered and the benefits. Um it's interesting because as we've we've seen, both these programs, part of the 2005 Energy Policy Act, have been enforced since January 2006, have gone through some minor revisions, but ever since they came out, there was a lot of effort or discussion 
in efforts to try and change the program. Well, now, however, how many years later, we do have these, as you heard Terry talk about, particularly that, that I mean, that's a significant change oh, yeah. of $2,000 to potentially $5,000 per dwelling unit. And I think therein lies really one of the crux of this these changes. The, the government is trying to modify behaviors. So specific to 179D, 179D has been pretty much in, in the form that we've known. We call it the legacy legacy format for since its inception and essentially focusing on three areas of construction, interior lighting, HVAC, and building envelope, each essentially contributing up to 60 cents a square foot for a full $1.80 for a project. Let's be honest here. $1.80 of square footage is really, and then we're talking deduction benefit, where's Terry's 45L she was talking about as a credit. Right. So you really look at the economics, they're not that significant. But nonetheless, people have really been interested in the program since its inception. As I said, there's been a lot of effort to try and change it. Well, that occurred in August. So what we're looking at as we flip the calendar to 23, we're going to see that benefit go from today, $1.88 a square foot, up to $5 a square foot. Which is remarkable. It, it is. And I think it, it, it meets one of the things that people have been clamoring for is to really, okay, if you want me to change my behaviors, make it worth my while. If you while. want to incentivize this, you got to really incentivize it. So that definitely is going to move the needle. But then, all right, now let's talk about the but. As you heard Terry talk about prevailing, you guys talk about prevailing wage mm-hmm. a little bit ago, same thing here. So we have those hoops to jump through. And I think you all mentioned too that we just got some clarifications, the beginning of clarifications from the IRS regarding the IRA, but this is just the beginning. Yes. So I would say that even today where we sit, the end of 2022, people planning for, hey, all right, I see this big $5 square foot or $5,000 tax credit for 45L, how, what do I do? We're still not in a position to really give clear guidance as to you do this, this will happen. But specific to, to 179D, we see the benefit kicking up to a potential of, a, of $5 a square foot. But again, you have to be willing to use a certain type of labor. And obviously that can vary from state to state, municipality to municipality. And how do we prove that out? Well, the IRS started to give us some clarity on that. And then you all talked about too, well, what about a project that I started today, but it'll be going into service in 23? Well, we're starting to get some clarity, but we don't know exactly how that's going to work. And okay, so what if I don't? Well, then certainly there's a scale back in terms of your benefit. By the way, that scale back is less than what we had today. It was so it was a dollar eighty eight, and now it's going to be a dollar per square right. foot, right, Bruce? If you don't meet those, so if so, you don't so meet if you that prevailing wage, there's some subtle yes. hints being given here of behaviors, not just from an improving your energy perspective, but how you're performing the work. So I think that there's there's definitely some some things that the government has wanted to instill with the program. Um, I think it's a it, it. I think this is definitely both of these are very well well worthwhile looking at, but the problem that we have right now is that we still have a lot of questions, and our ability to be able to really definitively say you do this you will get that, it's not all that clear. Um, it was interesting. I know Terry and I and Zeev we talked a lot about when this first came about, and personally I had no idea that Congress was going to do anything like this. It dropped in. And it was past the end of August, and then <laughs> September, the phone lines lit up, and this is all anybody wanted to talk about because the numbers are so significant. But again, as I've said a couple times, yes, let's just breathe, let's just think this through and wait for the IRS to give us clarity on being able to really make some, some hard decisions on things because I, I can only imagine the difference between labor rates might be all that might be pretty significant, and you have to weigh that against is it worth going that path versus what my other path would be and forego some of that benefit, the, the benefit we're talking about. Whew. 
Yeah. The, the IRA is changing the game, and there's a lot of nuances. There's a lot of, of subtleties. Like Bruce said, we don't have all the answers yet. More guidance is forthcoming. If you do want to take a dive into what we do know, if you go under blogs on our website, there is an article summarizing the IRA's take-home perspectives with the kind of the capstan analysis that that is always helpful. So you can take a look at that and kind of get an idea of where we're holding right now. But there's more to discover and we're waiting um, along with you for more guidance from the IRS. I think that's it guys, that was our top 10 and I feel like we covered quite a lot. What do oh, you yeah. think? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, every year it's kind of interesting because this is also dependent on what the, I, the IRS is issuing, what we're seeing coming down like this, like Bruce mentioned, we weren't expecting this IRA and then all of a sudden it drops and it's like, wow, game changer. So every year just seems to be different. It's never boring. It's never That's boring. For sure. <laughs> it's never boring. Keeps us on our toes. It does. <laughs> you really look at it, 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 the law of averages, something else is definitely going to happen. I mean, for example, when's the last piece of court case, a court case specific to this little area of tax practice? <clears throat> There probably is, we can anticipate something like that happening. But the point is that, well, the point is that as dry a subject as depreciation is, there's always changes. There's always things going, uh, changing going forward. But I just want to bring up again that when we look at cost irrigation, it is pretty much the one of the best games in town for people in real estate to mitigate tax liability. And I know, Zeev, you talked about like bonus rates rolling back. But again, 80% is better than zero. Absolutely. Right? 80% is quite robust, and it'll still be a driver for but, people. But it's in the mind, we've had this in our minds that this is the way it's been. It's the way it's always going to be. Well, just an indication of how things are going to change, and we have to adapt with that. That's the best take home message is we got to adapt, we got to pivot, and we got to move forward. Um, there is so much benefit to be had, and um, we're here to help. Um, thank you guys so much for coming on, for taking the time. Um, and um, listeners, if you enjoyed what you heard, why not subscribe? We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or just go to our website at capstantax.com slash podcasts. I'm Helena Carmel here with our producer, Aaron Strongen. Thanks so much again to Terry Johnson, Bruce Johnson, and Steve Carmel. For, and thanks for tuning into our year-end Top 10 Spectacular. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Capstan Live. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. Visit our website at capstantax.com for more info on everything we discussed today, plus breaking news, industry blogs, and more. Have a profitable day.